0: Welcome to our series, The Real You. My name is Ben and I'm one of the pastors here at Sanctus Church. Uh, If you have a Bible in front of you or on your phone, uh, you could turn to Esther 4. That's where we're going to be at today. Uh, What I love about this series that we're in uh, this summer is it's all about identity. And identity, uh, no matter who you are as a human being, if this is your first time tuning in, uh, identity is an easy series to jump into because some point in our life, maybe even right now, we're all on this journey to figure out who we are. So as you start, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever experienced the humiliating gap between who you want to be and who you actually are? Have you ever experienced that, that humiliating gap between who you want to be and who you actually are? Right now in this moment, I don't know what is coming into your mind, but right uh, for me, when I think about this question, the first thing that pops into my mind is my dream as a kid to make it to the NBA. In fact, it was to be the first Brown person to make it into the NBA, because let's just be honest, there's not a lot of Indian people in the NBA right now. And I know what you're thinking. Uh, You're looking on camera and you see this brown skinny dude who's barely like six feet, but don't let my crop jeans fool you. Get me on a basketball court and I will make it rain on you. I'm just playing, but seriously. I wanted to be in the NBA, and ever since I was a kid, ever since I was like six years old, I grew up watching greats like Michael Jordan, trying to imitate them. The Last Dance on Netflix, that's actually my childhood. I watched those games live, and I would mimic his moves on my little Fisher Price hoop at home. And as I went to high school, that uh, it turned into mimicking Kobe Bryant and greats like Gary Payton, because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, where the Seattle Supersonics ruled, uh, in the 90s for a little bit. That being said, though, I did everything I can. And uh, uh, NBA and basketball was just this obsession for me that took over my life. I'd spend every countless hour uh, in the driveway shooting hoops. I'd ask my parents to put me uh, into basketball camp after basketball camp. One point sending me one summer uh, to visit my aunt in Kansas City and putting me in a basketball camp out there. But all of that culminated to this one moment uh, in university where I didn't make any college basketball team. I... Got into university, I I was in pre-med, and I had this brilliant idea that that was fine. I would just, through hard work, redshirt it, try to walk onto our university basketball team. So the first fall of the first year of university, I was working really hard, working and honing in on my skills. And I actually was friends with quite a bit of the guys on the actual basketball team because they lived in my friend's dorm. So I'd try to get into all these pickup games with them anytime I could. And this one game, I will never forget because I was playing and being guarded by the six foot four dude. Uh, All you need to know is that we grew up playing basketball against each other. So there was a bit of a rivalry going on and he was guarding me. And I, I was a bit cocky. And I remember this one play, I crossed him over. I thought I blew by him with my speed and I was on my way to lay it in where all of a sudden out of nowhere, this guy with the you know, wingspan of a pterodactyl comes out of nowhere and swipes the ball right out of the air. And not only that, I don't know what happened, but I found myself on the ground. And I'm not that short, but in that moment, I felt like I was like Kevin Hart being rejected by Ibaka, if you know what I'm saying. But here's the thing, no matter how you answer that question, we all want to be people that reach our full potential, right? But what if the cultural vision of your life that you are following right now isn't going to lead you to that? What if you were actually never created to fill that gap in the first place? What if there is a better vision for your life to follow, an identity that when embraced will lead you actually to your full potential? This is my prayer for you uh, today as we uncover this piece of identity in the book of Esther. My prayer is that as I am speaking, as we're talking, that this identity piece you would grab onto, that you would embrace, and that it would uh, awaken something that might have been lying dormant inside of you all this time. And not that it would fill the gap with what you need to be, who you want to be, but it would fill the gap and help you move towards who God has called you to be. So with that, I just want to pray really quick and we're going to jump into the story of Esther. God, I pray that you would uh, couple my words with your power and that you would speak through me and that everything that is said and done in this place, God, is done for your glory. Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story of Esther, uh, it's hundred years into exile or so that we find God's people, the people of Israel in dispersion in the Persian empire. Some of the Jews were allowed to go back to build the temple and to build the wall. But right here in the story of Esther, we find the Jews that stayed back in the capital city of Susa. And what these Jews are doing is that they're trying to make their way in this hostile culture. But Persia, like empires before and since, overwhelmed other lands and peoples with military power and commercial power. And what they sought to do was obliterate their cultures and belief systems. Some authors say to live in exile is to live in a culture that has values that don't line up with your own or your faith. For those of you that don't know the story of Esther, I encourage you, go and read it. It will speak into the situation that we're in right now in this cultural moment. It will speak into your life. And that's what I loved about this story. Rereading it all this week and this past week, it was just injecting my life with hope and courage and speaking to me how I should walk out my life with Jesus. And some of that I hope to to give, to uh, share with you this Day. But if you don't know the story, go read it. And if you do know the story, go reread it. Or even better, get the Bible app on your phone and get it to read it to you and just listen to the story. Why? Because what I realized after digging into it this past week is the way that I was told, I grew up in church. So the way that I was told this story in Sunday school, or for example, this classic Christian cartoon called The Veggie Tales, it wasn't quite like this nice bedtime story. In fact, the way that the story is written is more of this like comical, humorous type of way. And actually it reads more like Game of Thrones, I found. What am I saying? I'm not trying to endorse that show. Uh, I don't watch it. But what I'm trying to get through to you and communicate to you is that this is no bedtime story. Throughout the book, there are themes of power, sex, violence. This is a pretty gritty story. And this is where we start the story in chapter one, in this gritty, cultural, hostile moment. uh, The book starts off by introducing us to this king, King Xerxes. And what I'm going to try to do in this next couple moments is just give you a bird's eye view of the story to catch you up, to get us all on the same page. So King Xerxes is introduced to us. He's the king of Persia. He rules all 127 provinces from India to Kush. And so what he tries to do, what they say that the Persians do as a mode of assimilation is they throw these huge feasts, these huge banquets. So the people are not mad for taking them over, but they are just uh, convinced that life is going to be good in the Persian empire. So what he does is he throws this 187 day partay uh, for all of the empire. And he invites everybody in the kingdom to come and just eat and drink and have a good time. And I'm not talking about coming and eating and drinking Martinelli's. Uh, they're drinking, you know, like Cab Sab or a nice Marlowe. And what happens is at the height of the king's drunkenness, sometime in this 187 day party, he sends out this demand that his queen, Queen Vashti, the most beautiful woman in all the land, come in front of all his guests and entertain them but it was a degrading demand. Why was it a degrading demand? Well, some scholars say that what the king was requesting was that the queen come out in front of all his guests wearing her crown and nothing but her crown. That's right. This culture is unfortunately a lot like our own where they just objectify women left, right, and center. The story goes on and Queen Vashti uh, denies that request because she's an honorable woman. She has her dignity intact. And so she pulls like this Sasha Fierce type move, says no to the king, goes to the back of the palace and takes a bat to his favorite chariot. Remember, this is my paraphrase of the story. But in the king's drunken rage, he gets mad at Vashti and he decides he's gonna banish her forever from his kingdom. Time passes by, uh, the king gets lonely and his advisors come up with this great plan. They're like, hey, king, let's go out throughout the land, round up all the young girls, the young, beautiful girls, and we'll find you a new king amongst them. This is where we're introduced to our two main Jewish characters, Esther and Mordecai in a scene that some talk about is being like a beauty pageant of sorts. But as I was digging into the story and rereading it this week, I've come to actually think that it lines up more like human trafficking. You need to realize these girls are being ripped from their families from different places around the province and bring brought to the center of the kingdom, the capital city of Susa, to serve the carnal needs of the king in his harem. Esther is one of those girls, but because of God's favor, because of God's grace, she finds favor with the king. Her cousin Mordecai, who's her older cousin, who brought Esther up because she was an orphan, tells her, hey, hide your Jewish identity, probably for her safety. And as she enters the king's court, the king just is obsessed with her, infatuated with her beauty. And he makes her the new queen of Persia. A bit of a silver lining for the Jewish people in exile until this one moment in the story where the king decides to take his officer, Haman, who's the main villain of the story and escalate him and give him a promotion to one of the highest seats of power in all of the kingdom. Think for a, sec- a second, like the position of like vizier. I'm thinking like, you know, far from Aladdin. He's like the, the king's advisor of sorts. Haman wants respect from everybody all around him. And he goes through the marketplace. And there's this one moment where everybody's bowing down to him, except Mordecai, the Jew. Why? Because Mordecai as a Jew doesn't bow down to anybody except the one and only true God of Israel. Haman, just like the king, goes into this crazy rage, this anti-Semitic rage, and decides that he's going to convince the king to set out this edict that everybody in the Jewish nation that lives in the place of Persia is going to die and be annihilated on this specific day. That's where we find ourselves in chapter four. That's where we're going to go. Chapter four. And Mordecai here in chapter four is in front of the king's gate, crying out, wailing, crying, the text say, and, he, and he's in the sackcloth and he's taking ashes and put it on his head. And this is a, a fashion trend. Remember, this is the Middle Eastern culture that they are living and, and doing life in. And what this is a symbol of is his great distress, his deep grief that he's feeling in this moment. Esther is in the king's court, so she doesn't understand what's going on. So where we jump in in verse seven is that she sends her servant Hathic to figure out what's going on. And this is what happens. Mordecai told him, the servant, everything that had happened to him, including the exact moment uh, amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and to explain to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy and plead for her people. I want you to feel the weight of this moment, the tension of this moment. Mordecai is in deep distress and he's communicating to Esther through her sermon that, hey, you're in a position that you can do something. So you have to do something. You have to go. But the tension builds in verse nine with her response. Hathic, her servant, went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go into to the king. What's going on is Esther is trying to explain to Mordecai that this is impossible. She hasn't been summoned to see the king. And so if she was to go in to see the king without being asked, and he didn't for some reason extend the golden scepter, she would be dead. She would be hung or killed by lions, something like that. Something horrible. But she throws in this interesting line in verse 11. And it's this, but 30 days have passed since the king has called me. Translation, the king has lost sexual interest with Esther. And just like any culture that objectifies women, he's on to the next one, onto the next person that he's going to prey on. So Esther is just trying to communicate to Mordecai. The, 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 the moment right now, it's impossible for me to do this. The king will not extend his scepter out. The chances are slim to none. And here's where we find Mordecai's response, the crux of the book of Esther in verse 12 to 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief And deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. You can uh, underline that word, another place. We're going to come back to it. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to the royal palace for such a moment as this. This is Mordecai's motivational speech moment, his big uh, motivational speech. Like you think like Winston Churchill in the finest hour speech, or I have a dream speech by Martin Luther King in a version of a modern day philosopher, Eminem, it's like, you only got one chance. Do not miss your chance to blow this opportunity. comes once in a lifetime. He's trying to inspire her. <laughs> He's trying to get her pumped up, but Esther's not feeling it, right? This is Esther's Oldest cousin trying to convince her, hey, you have to do something. And I want you to realize for a second the type of faith that this guy has. Look at his words deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. The book of Esther doesn't mention God once. Those words, another place, are the closest thing that we get. Place in the original Hebrew language scholars say, can be translated to be used to refer to God. It's this word that the Hebrews use sometimes to refer to God. But that's the closest thing that we get to a mention of God in the whole story, the whole book of Esther. In light of that, these words convey to us that he believes that no matter how bleak the situation is right now, God is in control. God will act. God will do something. He will find a way to move and move his plan forward. And this is what I want you to hear today. This is what I want you to grasp in this moment, in this tense moment. The text is encouraging us. The text is preaching to us hope. I don't know what's going on in your life, but no matter how your life might be following falling apart in this pandemic moment, maybe you lost your job, maybe you've lost relationships, maybe you lost your health, maybe your marriage is moving towards divorce, maybe you have a kid or a family member that's far from God, maybe you are struggling with the thoughts of anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts of all kinds, and it looks super bleak in your life right now, and you're wondering, where is God? God, where are you? And you're pl- Praying like your life depended on it, but getting no answer. Let this text preach to you that God is there even in the silence, even when you don't feel Him. He's moving, He's working in the background through different events. And this is what I love about following Jesus. Listen to me, He doesn't promise you that this life is going to be easy, He doesn't promise you that you're not going to go through hard seasons like this pandemic. He doesn't promise you that you might not face persecution of all sorts. But what he does promise you in his word is that he will be with you through thick and thin if you call yourself a follower of Jesus and have surrendered your life to him. And some of you, I want to encourage you, friend, in this moment, God is all powerfully present, even if he seems absent right now. God is all powerfully present, even if he seems absent. Esther hears Mordecai's words and she responds like this and sends back this reply in verse 16. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or night night or day and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And this is her famous line, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away carried out all of Esther's instructions. So what led to uh, Esther's change of heart? That's the question I was asking when I was reading this text. Well, what we have to do is we have to go back to Mordecai's words in verse 14, and it's these words, you and your father's house will perish. One pastor puts it like this. What he's doing is he's reminding her not only of her Jewish ethnic identity, but of her Jewish spiritual identity. She could not deny her place with God's people at a time of crisis without cutting herself off from it permanently, he writes. In saying your father's house will perish, she was essentially telling Esther, your spiritual identity will have ended with your father's death. Withdraw now and be withdrawn forever. So what is Mordecai doing? He's putting uh, Esther's Jewish identity in front of her. And he's reminding her that she's part of God's people, God's covenant people, the Bible says. Covenant meaning that they're just in this partnership with God, that if they follow God and God alone, what he will do is rescue them. And not only that, he will redeem all the people of the world through the Israelites and move them back to this garden-like experience in Eden where they're in relationship with him, where his kingdom comes back once again and his rule and reign is there. And this is what Mordecai is trying to remind her of. And he's also saying like, hey, the stakes are high. Remember the tension of this moment. Authors say that in this moment, what we're seeing through the weeping, through the fasting, through the praying, it's like this turning point moment. These are all signs of repentance that even though the Israelites, what they did, disobedience led them into this exilic moment. They're repenting, they're turning back to God so he can once again work through them. And he's saying, Esther, the stakes are high. Not only is your true identity at stake, but your purpose that will lead to your true fulfillment is possibly at stake. What if you were created for this moment? And this is what I love about crisis. This is the beautiful thing about crisis. It can shake you out of complacency and awaken you to your destiny. It could shake you out of complacency and awaken you to your destiny. See, we serve a God that can even take the evil events, the evil things that come from the enemy that happen to us and use them for our good to move his plan forward. And by God's grace, that's exactly what Mordecai's words are doing. They're leading Esther to live out her identity, which is starting to pray to fast. That's how that's her embracing her identity. And not only that, she says like, "Hey, get the Jewish people to pray and fast with me." And I'm going to get my maidservants. What does that mean? To get her maidservants to pray and fast with her means that she has to reveal to them who she is, that she's a Jew. Reveal her identity. This personal renewal of Esther leads eventually to the end of the story where we see this community renewal of the Jewish people. Not only that, God through Mordecai and Esther's plan uh, redeems the Jewish people. It allows them to flourish in this hostile culture. And not only that, he gets rid of all of Haman's family, all of their enemies. The Israelites rise up and kill all of uh, of Haman's family. And this is important. And this is what I want you to get. Only after she identifies herself with God's people does she fully embrace the purpose for which God has positioned her. Only after she embraces, right? The purpose for which God has positioned her does she move into this this purpose that God has for her. And this is an interesting tidbit that I'm going to throw out there, okay? From this point onward, from chapter five after this, verse two onward, the author stops addressing her as Esther and starts addressing her as Queen Esther, who she always was once she became the queen of Persia. But this is an interesting thing. Her identity gave her a courage and authority to act confidently that her position never could. Did you get that? Her identity gave her a courage and authority to act confidently that her position never could. So what does it have to do with our identity, right? Well, as followers of Jesus, we also have this identity as God's people. We're under the new covenant that this new partnership that Jesus established for us in the gospel that makes us part of God's people. And this is the identity piece because we are in Christ. We are called, we're called. What does that mean? And when I say called, we are people of his presence that bring about his kingdom into the present. We are people of his presence that bring about his kingdom into the presence. And when I say kingdom, what I mean is God's rule and reign anywhere his will is done. That's what we are. We're called. We're called to bring about his presence through the Holy Spirit and his kingdom in the here and the now. I want you to grasp that identity piece. I want you to get that in your head this morning. I don't know what you need to do. Maybe you need to write it on a post-it note, put it in your bathroom mirror. So every morning you can wake up and remind yourself that you are called. I've come to shake some of you out of complacency, awaken you guys up to purpose. If you're lacking that, if you were, you were reaching for that, this whole pandemic, trying to figure out, God, what are you calling me to do? You need to remember first your identity, that you are called. And listen, when it comes to being called, when it comes to being the people of God that, that are about his presence, that bring the kingdom into the present, what you do doesn't shape who you are. Your identity as called shapes what you do. You're not shaped by what you do, but you're shaped by this identity piece. Your identity as called shapes what you do. It's been ingrained in us in this culture from an early age that what you do is who you are. And that's totally false. That's wrong. You need to take that idea in your brain, click it, drag it, throw it in the trash can of your brain and delete it forever because it's your identity as called that shapes what you do. And I want to give you in the next couple of moments, just this new vision for how you lived your life. Okay. And we're not going to be able to go into a full theology of vocation as a Christian, but one outworking of this is this living into this identity as called means embracing it wholeheartedly means understanding that God has called you so that you could call others. God has called you. So that through your life, he could call others. That you are set up in people's lives so that they can be redeemed. And listen, me and my wife, I have been talking about this and I've been reminding her of this all throughout this pandemic. Right now, she is a mom, a full-time mom. And not only that, like some of you, she is also our kid's teacher. We have four kids. Three of them are in elementary school. And right now, she's a full-time mom. In times past, she, she owned her own businesses. She was a hairstylist. She worked in a salon. And what she's been struggling with in this moment, and it's kind of come to the surface because of everything happening around her, is that she's been struggling with purpose. She's been struggling with trying to figure out her purpose. And I've been at home. I've been trying to help her out as much as possible, but I've taken it on myself to be as her husband, her greatest cheerleader, her greatest encourager, To continue to remind her, like, babe, you are called. If you're a mom out there, you are called. You're called to bring God's presence and his kingdom into the present, into the lives of the people around you. And in this moment, that's our kids. And both of us together, we are discipling our kids in the ways of Jesus. We're influencing them in his kingdom ways so that one day they can grow up to make a kingdom impact. And what I consistently try to do and a reminder of is to to just adopt Mordecai's what if type of imagination. I love his optimism. And I'm like, what if, what if you right now, as a mom, you're raising the next Christine Kane or the next Priscilla Shire or the next Billy Graham that will go on from this moment onwards as he grows up and makes a huge kingdom uh, impact. I want you to think like that. I want you to grasp that. And it goes on from being a mom or a parent. If you're a baker, you're called. If you're a landscaper, you're called. If you're a construction worker, you're called. If you're a businessman or woman, you're called. If you're in the music industry, you're called. If you're in the fashion industry, you're called. If you're in the government, you are called. We need to bring God's kingdom and his presence everywhere we are. And we need to realize and live into this identity that in any moment, listen, this was a normal day that Esther woke up. She didn't know that it was going to lead to a life-changing moment that was going to make this great impact moment in the kingdom of God. And we need to live every day with this understanding that we are called, that somebody that we come in contact with, that God could somehow through his spirit work through our lives to change the trajectory of their life for eternity. That is what is at stake. That is some way God has uniquely called you to, and put people in your life to make that kind of impact. And this is why I believe it down to the core of who I am. And yes, it's going to cause you to make risks and it's going to cause you to, to act encouraged just like Esther in this moment. And sometimes the risks might not be death, but it might be a social death of sorts, or it might be risking your uncomfortability, moving you out of your comfort zone. And this is what I believe. I want to give you one example for my life. I've seen God work over and over again in this way but this is one story. Okay. So back on the West coast, I uh, was a pastor of this young adult ministry at this awesome church. And we had this service on a Friday night. It was called the collective. And I remember one collective, uh, I was preaching on spiritual gifts. And so we were talking about how the Holy Spirit moves through us in spiritual gifts to encourage others. And I finished this talk. I went out off to the backstage And I will never forget, I heard so clearly in my mind, God tell me that, hey, I want you to go back on that stage and uh, invite a guy named Sam into my family. Invite a guy named Sam into my family. And I was just like super nervous up to this point in my life. Like I've never got a request like that from God to do. Like I, I was still understanding my spiritual gifts. I wasn't really sure about them. And so I was just pacing back and forth, arguing with God. And I was like, I cannot do that. What if I'm wrong? And so what it led me to do after five minutes of just arguing and being like, no, God, I can't do that. That's impossible. I went to one of my friends uh, who was co-leading with me in that ministry and we prayed into it. And as we were praying, I just felt this peace come over me and I knew I needed to do that. And because I was the pastor in that community, I got up in front of like these 400 young adults. And I was like, hey, I could be totally wrong. But right now, I believe that there is a guy here. Um, you're not sure what you're doing here. You kind of like stumbled into the service tonight. And your name is Sam. And God is inviting you into his family tonight. And if that's you, and the Holy Spirit's doing something in your heart and that resonates with you. I'm going to be in the back of the auditorium and I would just love to pray with you. So I put down the mic. I was trembling. I was super nervous. I took what it felt like uh, uh, minutes to an hours to walk to the back of the room while everybody's eyes were on me, just waiting tensely to see what happened. And I stood there and I was so nervous. And it was like, my credibility as a pastor was at, on the line. And I was like praying the whole time, God, what, what do I say? If this person gets up, I don't know what to say. A couple minutes went by that again, felt like ages. And this young dude from the front row got up and he starts working his way back to me. And I'm like, okay, here we go. My palms are getting sweaty. <laughs> and he comes up to me and he, he's nervous. I could tell that he's really nervous. And he's like, Ben, um, I don't know what I'm doing here. I actually wasn't supposed to be here. I, I race cars. And so usually on Friday nights, which is where our young adult service was. And on Sundays, I can't make it to church because I race cars. But my girlfriend always invites me out to this service, but I've never been able to come. But today I was supposed to race. And for some reason, my engine wouldn't start. And so uh, uh, before the race, I couldn't race. And I'm like, okay, well, I might as well not waste this time. Collective was about to start, which is our young adult service. And I'm like, okay, I'm going mi- to come, come out here. So here I am. And you were speaking to me. And here's the w- weird thing. He said, my, name, my name's not Sam. It's actually so-and-so. But all the people in my family, my close family, for some reason, ever since I was a kid, their nickname for me is Sam. So I don't know, man, I'm here. uh, Yeah. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit just led me to share my testimony with him, which included, you know, one of my friends passing away in a car accident. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit did something in his heart and he just started crying. And he told me that he was just wrestling with the death of his friend who died in a car accident a couple months back. And he just had all these questions, et cetera, et cetera. I tried to console him in that moment. But at the same time, I told him about the gospel. I told him about the love of Jesus. And I asked him if he wanted to surrender his life to Jesus. And sure enough, he did. In that moment before the last worship song, I got up there and we all got to celebrate Sam being invited into God's family. That wasn't his name, but that was the case. And we praised God like none other. And I remember this worship pastor just making this connection for me. And she, and she said this, she said this, she's like, um, isn't it so cool? that God used one of the most intimate names that this guy was known by to invite him into his family. And I know what you're thinking, Ben, but you're a pastor. That, That would never happen to me. That's a crazy story. But I want you to understand I'm just a normal guy. There's nothing special about me. I I haven't gone to seminary to be able to qualify me to do this job. The only thing that I've done in my life has just been to strive by God's grace to be obedient to me, to him, uh, whenever he calls me to do something. My goal is always to say yes, to step out in faith, even if I have to risk everything, even if I have to risk moving across the country. But this is the thing that I want you to get. You are called and God wants to work through your life like this. But here's the one thing that hinders most of us. And this is what we're going to end. The same thing that hindered Esther in this moment hinders us all the time. What hindered Esther from initially initially responding with courage and going out of her comfort zone is this, that she was wrestling with the compromise of comfort. The compromise of comfort. I love how one writer puts it. Life in the Citadel, especially life in the palace itself, was much like life in our own world. It was a place of comfort and distractions, a place in which a person could lose herself in entertainment and gossip. And while most of us aren't surrounded by servants and golden goblets, a life full of distractions is universal. We can lose ourselves in headphones and smartphones, in mindless consumption of television, in endless meals or empty calories. Anybody like me like to eat chips at 10 p.m.? Yeah? Yeah. In shopping and bickering about politics and sensing dulling drugs and drinks and much, much more. In a world shadowed by the prospect of death, we have to constantly face the temptation to lose ourselves in anything else to avoid the pain. To break out of such a life, one has to recognize that really it isn't a life at all. It's a certain kind of death, a numbness that only masks our pain, but insulates us also from joy. Esther's choice is our choice. Esther's choice is therefore one between death and death, a death defined by courage and willingness to sacrifice on behalf of others or a death defined by numbness and withdrawal. Only one path, the path of risk offers us deep satisfaction and moves us to our true purpose and living out our true calling in this life. But isn't that the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus is not the way of comfort, but the way of the cross. I I read the word courage uh, finds its root in the Latin word core, which means heart. To be courageous is to live from your heart, to speak from your heart. And the cross is the very heart of the gospel message and the biblical story. It's where God communicates his heart to us. But this is the cross is not just a message to be proclaimed, but a way to be followed an example to be followed. Esther's words, if I perish, I perish. Remind me of Jesus's words in the garden before he went to the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. It's a denial of self for others, which led Jesus, like Esther, to identify with all of humanity, come down from his palace in heaven, take on flesh and blood, and die for the sins of the world. But not only that, come again back to life on the third day, making a way for me and you back into relationship with God so we can be called once again, God's people. This is Jesus' words to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. And I want them to speak to you this morning. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. To live into your calling is always gonna be you wrestling with and dying to yourself. If you want to live a life, that is called. But just remember the stakes are high. Not only is the stake of somebody meeting Jesus through your life at stake if you don't live out this calling, but also you embracing the purpose, the reason that God has created you and put you on this earth. That's what at stake, because this is the thing. Jesus is not an identity that we could choose. Jesus is our only identity. Why? Because he's the perfect example of what it means to be human. He images God perfectly. And that's what we were made and created to do, to image God. So when we look at his example and follow it, We live into our full potential and we flourish. So here's my question for you this morning as I end. What is God asking you to risk for his kingdom? What is God asking you to risk this week, this month, this day? And this is what I want to encourage you with. Maybe whatever that thing is that God's asking you to risk, maybe by you saying yes and being obedient, on the other side of that, it might lead you to your greatest moment of impact.